0: Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Time to get lit on literature. Yay. (laughs) This is a a very awaited episode for us.
1: Yeah, I think we've been wanting to do an episode like this for a really, really long time. (laughs) Yeah. And to be fair, we didn't want to have to. Yes. I guess is the right way to phrase it. We didn't want to have to do this, but we did edit, uh, our list of books for the year to accommodate this one in particular, because it's a conversation that we need to have right now. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation that we know a lot of people are having. And so any way that we can engage in this, uh, topic, I think is really, really important. So we chose this book specifically to react to what's going on. Yep. And we haven't always done that. So it's exciting for Yay! us, I think very timely. Very timely for the worst reasons. Yeah, but,
0: horrible. But it's <laughs>
1: it's the right thing to do. Yeah,
0: ma- making our uh, our mark in this and helping spread the word on this important issue.
1: Exactly. So if you all haven't figured it out by now from seeing some of our posts and just generally um you know knowing us and our opinions on this um this is an episode that is completely dedicated to what has just happened with the overturning of roe um here in the united states and essentially um coming to a crossroads where we're trying Mm -hmm. to understand where we go from here this is i think a really really dark time In our country, I think it's a really, really rotten moment. And we have every reason to be frustrated, angry, sad, terrified, you know, whatever you're feeling, I think it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable. So, what we wanted to do again was really, really, really emphasize this topic and dive deep into it. And we found the perfect book to do this. And this is Life's Work A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker. And this is just such a great book.
0: Amazing. I, I loved reading it. Um, I know when we thought about this episode, we had a few books to choose from. And I'm really glad we did this one because it's written fantastically. It has all the facts. But I feel like it also speaks to a lot of those unresolved issues that some people have around abortion. And I'm like, but I'm a Christian, so I should think this. Or all the propaganda they've been taught. Um, it kind of helps erase that, alleviate that, and reason with that.
1: Exactly. I think it it really dives into the issue from the perspective of first of all a scientist, mm-hmm. a doctor, which is exactly who we should listen to when it comes <laughs> to this issue. Right. Yeah. I don't I don't really care to listen to a politician or a pastor on this issue. I want to hear Same. from doctors. And so this was a really important uh, criteria for us was to just make sure we had that scientific view. But this is also what's really fascinating to me is that Dr. Parker is also a Christian, a devoted Christian, Mm -hmm. a person of religion. And so he is able to speak from a perspective that even I, don't know and don't understand being, you know, a person who's not religious at all. So he brings these two things together and so eloquently weaves a narrative about his own life, his experiences as a doctor, what's going on in the United States right now to create something that I think is, is required reading, frankly, yes. for anybody who wants to under understand this issue better.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Because even... You know, I find myself to be very informed on the issue, but the way that he broke it down into each chapter and each topic just gave me an even further understanding on, on why it's so important to women and, and empowering us as women.
1: Yeah. And looking at it from, from from different perspectives and figuring out how these laws really do affect everyday women. So we're going to dive into that. But before we do, where I just wanted to give everyone a sort of brief overview. We really wanted to make sure this conversation was as organized as possible because we want to put the facts out there in a way that are that is easily digestible. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to talk about Dr. Parker's view specifically. Uh, I really want to talk about his background as a doctor, as, as a Christian. We're also going to talk about the history of abortion in the United States and how this issue became politicized, specifically in the 1980 presidential election we're also going to talk about and really emphasize the link between abortion and poverty mm-hmm. and how a lot of these laws specifically, of course, as always, affect the poorest among us. We're also going to touch on religious interpretation and how abortion has been a topic that has been very, very difficult to discuss within religious contexts, and we'll go into why. And lastly, and I think most importantly, we're going to dive into some medical facts about the procedure and statistics and what it really means for a woman to undergo an abortion, what a first trimester, second trimester and third trimester abortion are, what does that mean, and how language has so much to do with with the propaganda that we're fed every single day about all of these issues. So those are really our our main talking points. I have no doubt that we'll probably veer off a little bit (laughs) because we're both so incredibly passionate about this issue. We're fired up. We're very fired up. We're very angry. (laughs) What you can't see right now is that I am wearing a sweatshirt that says 1973 on it, which is of course the year of Roe. and Alexa is wearing a feminist as fuck
0: t-shirt so we're <laughs> we're, we're representing feeling it. we're feeling it and
1: we're with you and <laughs> yeah. and before we dive into all of that alexa also found an incredible wine that was so, so perfect for this so, so perfect. perfect and it's delicious i'm already like halfway through the of so yes
0: yeah, so as you can imagine it's kind of hard to find a winery that's out there about their, uh, their views on abortion. <laughs> so luckily, well, luckily and not luckily, cause it's unfortunate that Roe was overturned, but when it was being overturned, I was paying attention to my feed and found Tank Winery and they do a great job of supporting these important groups that support women's welfare and reproductive rights. So I was very glad to find Tank Winery's 2021 La Loba. It is a blend of many different grapes that we'll get into. It has some funkiness to it. And it also gives back to women's rights. So cheers. With cheers that. to that. And cheers lo- to
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely delicious. Well, we'll start off, I think a lot of people are initially going to ask us, well, who, who is this Dr. Parker? right? Who is, who is Dr. Willie Parker? Why is he writing this book? And 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 why should I be listening to him, right? And first of all, his, his resume is incredibly impressive, and I won't really dive into it in detail, but he's an abortion provider. He is a doctor who, as I mentioned before, is also a devoted Christian. He's someone who grew up in a very religious home. And despite so many obstacles and systems working against him, he became a doctor an OBGYN, and eventually really sp- specialized in yeah. in abortion care and he sees abortion care and the work that he does as his life's work as his calling and he believes wholeheartedly and and if i were a religious person i think i would agree with him wholeheartedly as well that he is certainly doing god's work yeah that what he does is provide women the opportunity to live the life that they want for themselves and he speaks so lovingly i think or he writes so lovingly in in this book and i think that that's part of the reason why i was so taken aback by the book is just he writes with a level of compassion that i wish more people were willing to dive into when talking about this issue but in the introduction you know he says that for him he finds this book to be an, an empowerment tool for people of faith and for people to find their own voice on this issue which is so important and as a scientist and a Christian, I am pleased that this book has been able to start a dialogue across the science-religious divide with people who insist on non-scientific understandings of reproductive and public health discourse on abortion and an advocacy tool for promoting reproductive health policy with politicians. So this is a book that has a very particular purpose, and that is to, as he said, you know, help people find their own voice on this issue. Because so often, as you mentioned people have a certain opinion based on the community with which they affiliate themselves. Yeah. So if you are a Republican or you are a church goer, you feel that you just have to.
0: Yeah. Have to take that side. Seeing uh, these random Facebook groups of, of non-scientist Republican women just
1: right. uh, that, giving you uh,
0: air quote facts about right. it. You know?
1: <laughs> right. And it's, and it's, and we'll dive into this as well as, as we go But you have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, the anti-choice movement has been very clever in how they have relayed their messaging. And I can see exactly where they where they manipulate and where they exaggerate and how that gets the desired effect. So credit where credit is due. And that's part of the reason why I think we need to fight that much harder and fight back with scientific reasoning and fight back with the same level of tenacity that we see from from their side. But Dr. Parker says, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and I believe that I am doing God's work. I am protecting women's rights, their human right to decide their futures for themselves and to live their lives as they see fit. And to me, that just encompasses the overall message of, of the book and of his practice. And for anyone who, who needs to read something that comes from, I think, a very, very compassionate and rational place, I think this is the book for you. Yeah. If you're interested in learning more about this particular issue. No,
0: I think it was amazing. And you could you could just hear the compassion in your head as you're reading it when he's talking about all the different patients he's had over the years, how he he feels a connection, whether the woman reminds him of his mom or his aunt or the girl next door, just he speaks from a really compassionate and, and sympathetic place.
1: Yeah. And he mentioned something that I thought was really, really, really important. He says, according to some, the highest calling of every woman is to become a mother. And if a woman does not choose to become a mother, then something is wrong with her. She is deficient somehow, not all there. And I think that that's a really, really good place to start because Mm -hmm. we've talked about that issue in other episodes very, very quickly, right? We yeah. sort of brushed brushed over it. I've always been very open about not wanting to be a mother. Um, and I think that that's a really difficult thing for some people to be able to voice. I think I'm very fortunate that I have friends and family who are all very supportive of that. But I know that that's not the case with everyone and that many, many people feel pressured to to have a family or to do things with their body that they don't want to do. And so I think that the way that he talks about his patients, as you mentioned, it's very much, you know, it's not my business. It's not my business, what they want to do with their lives. Sometimes they share and he talks about that. And I really enjoy that. You know, the women who are like, no, you know, I have an athletic career that I want to pursue, or I'm getting my master's degree. I'm going to law school. Right. Like they openly share these things and he appreciates that and speaks about it so sweetly in the book. But what I love is that he's like, regardless it's not my business. Yeah. I'm not it's it's not my choice. It's her choice and I'm only here to provide the service and the care that she needs. And if only we were able to think about women and the decisions that they make in that way more often across society, I think we'd yeah. be in a better place because one of the things that we've seen when it comes to abortion laws or bans or making it harder for women to access the abortion care that they need is the waiting period, right? Where they make you wait 24, 48, 72 hours after your your initial consultation. And sometimes I could see how someone who's maybe not entirely informed on the issue could say, oh, well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? You're just giving people the opportunity to think something through, but it's not, in line with the reality of the situation, which is when you make a woman wait 24, 40, 72 hours, you're making this whole situation much more costly, Yeah. right? You have to think about childcare. You have to think about time off. Sometimes these women are traveling to other states because they don't have the access to the care that they need in their own state. So things like that are, they seem so harmless and they seem almost rational, they almost, seem kind to somebody who does not know anything about this issue and so they claim to be trying to protect women but all they're doing is stalling the inevitable or making it significantly harder for women to access the care that they need and it's appalling
0: no definitely and also besides for making the women's um, abortion more costly during that time frame you're essentially telling women that they their decisions, they should second guess their own decisions. Like they're not in the right state of mind to be making these decisions for themselves. And when a woman goes to an abortion clinic to get an abortion, she's had time to think about this. It's not on a whim. It's not like taken lightly. It's she's there because she's thought long and hard about this. So having these waiting periods, it's insulting to our intelligence.
1: It's so insulting. They make you sit like, you know, like a, like a bad little girl on (laughs) timeout, you know, like, well, you really should think about this. So we're going to send you home for 48 hours. so You can really think about whether or not you want to do this. I mean, as you, it's, it's, it's so insulting, unbelievably. So, and something else that, that kind of, that pushes us into this other part of the conversation, that's trap laws. I wanted to mention what trap laws are at the very beginning of this episode, because we are probably going to reference them. Um, and that what we just mentioned is an example of a trap law and that is targeted regulation of abortion providers. So these are laws that aim at the business of abortion care. So they're creating more costly and unreasonable logistical hurdles that abortion providers have to clear in order to stay in business. So that's one of them in the sense that, you know, sometimes women then can't come back, Yeah, right? They don't have the time, etc. And of course, Republicans generally say that trap laws are there to help women to <laughs> create safer environments. And we know, we know that we know what to they think true. about women. Exactly. We know <laughs> what they really, really think about women. And something that they use as an argument for being sort of anti-abortion is this idea of life beginning at conception. We'll talk about that in more rigorous detail when we get to the medical portion of this episode, but I think it's worth mentioning now briefly because it's such a simple way to comprehend human reproduction that because of its simplicity, it offers moral clarity. Mm -hmm. And this And the whole conversation that we're going to have today lives in a very gray space. And that's important. And that's exactly why these decisions need to be made by the only person who can make them, which is the pregnant woman. Right. Everything is gray and only in her mind and in her heart does she know what she wants to do. So I really wanted to emphasize that because the more that we look at this from a black and white, very simplified perspective, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. When we sentimentalize these things, when we don't look at them from a scientific perspective, we are not having the conversation on the level that it needs to be had. So we can start, I think, with the history of abortion in the United States. Yeah, I think
0: that's a very important place to start because not everyone realizes when this whole abortion debate started and, and why it's so important.
1: Exactly, and why it's such a political issue. And something that I think is really important is that in the years before Roe, it was Republicans, not Democrats. Let me repeat. Yes. It was Republicans who were the most outspoken advocates For abortion rights. Why? Because it completely aligns with their views on small government and individual rights and being able to make private decisions without the government interfering in those decisions. My
0: body, my choice with the masks. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. (laughs) I loved
1: that. My body, my choice on vaccines. My body, my choice (laughs) on, on on masks. But no, no, no. Your body, my choice on abortion. I mean, it's the hypocrisy is stunning. It's rich, but it's incredible when you think about how this was an issue that completely aligned. And I mean, if you're going to think about it from a rational point of view, yeah, I would say that this perfectly aligns with what Republicans have always preached, which is, you know, the right and the ability to pursue the American dream without any infringement, without government infringement, with being able to do whatever it is that you want in order to live the life that you want to build for yourself. So it was really Republicans who were incredibly outspoken on this issue. And it wasn't until 1980 that this whole thing changed. The 1980 election is what changed absolutely everything. And what you had was this very interesting group. It was a sort of advisory organization called the Moral Majority. And they were an organization that was led by a fundamentalist Christian pastor from Virginia named Jerry Falwell. And he's responsible for what I would argue is probably the most successful marketing campaign Ever, yes. Um, he was, and I'm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this as a person who is who does marketing as her job, as her day job. You know this. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but I think it's incredible that what what he essentially did, along with the Moral Majority, was take an issue that was not particularly important in the political sphere and used it to bring. Thousands and thousands of voters, now single-issue voters, to the polls to stand in line to vote for something that they didn't really know about before. But the truth is that they needed, they needed a moral issue to stand on because they could no longer campaign on segregation. Yeah. That was no longer uh, cool. It's, it's not cool to be racist. Right. That was no longer appropriate on <laughs> a political platform. Right. <laughs> Good,
0: good. (laughs) Glad Uh, that happened. Happy for
1: them, happy for them. (laughs) Um, But what they did was essentially replace one issue with another. And they knew that when it came to abortion, there were many ways to manipulate the conversation and to create, I think, very, very horrific ways of thinking about abortion, very inhumane ways of thinking about abortion. And so what they did essentially was turn this issue into the Republican issue by bringing in evangelical voters. And it was in 1980 with the election of Reagan that all of this, that all of this really came to fruition. And it has since been a very important Republican issue and I think will continue.
0: Yeah, I think. All, all roads lead back to Reagan, don't they? They always that's do. What I'm, that's what I'm sensing they here. They
1: always do. All roads always lead back to Reagan. That's really where everything <laughs> Every started problem. going to shit. I mean, you <laughs> think about income inequality. You oh, think prison. about the prison industrial complex, the war, <laughs> war on, on drugs. drugs, you name it. War on poor people, Reagan started it. So we're just going to add this one to the list <laughs> to the of <laughs> shit he did to fuck everything up. Thanks, Reagan. Thank you so much, but Ronald Reagan. It
0: really is insane, though. Switching gears, finding an audience to to tailor this messaging to, even all the horrific propaganda, the the baby imagery, like full grown babies the telling photoshopped, the pho- yes, signs. saying yep. that you know they're the ones going to slaughter. It's it's insane. It, it's brilliant, honestly. It's, it's brilliant. It's I.
1: You have to give credit where you know. credit is due. You can learn from your opponent. I don't think that it's in our best interest to be as manipulative and disgusting and foul, but I do think that we should be as tenacious and as aggressive because if we're not, then we're just gonna continue to watch our rights disintegrate. And this is also, I would like to side note, dedicate this episode to everyone who sat at home during the election or who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because mm-hmm. they just didn't like her mm-hmm. or her emails. Because <laughs> I can tell you right now that I would still have bodily autonomy if she had been president and not Donald Trump. Agreed. 100%. So I just, I just want to put that out there for to everybody you. who wanted to act like an asshole. Or those
0: who thought, she's going to win. There's no way in hell. <laughs>
1: I keep forgetting about those people, but
0: you're absolutely right. Those people, they existed too. Yeah,
1: the people were like, oh yeah, that guy's not going to win. That's crazy, she'll be fine, I'll sit at home. And this is where we ended up because elections have consequences. And that's why we wanted to start this conversation with the kind of history of abortion in this country. And what I think is really fascinating is that the war on abortion rights began to be waged in terms of human rights. Like, they were very clever about this, Mm -hmm. right? Like, suddenly the living, breathing woman who carried the fetus was, was kind of cast as less than fully human, right? Either seen as some sort of criminal or a nonsensical person or somebody who just is careless. Yes. Right?
0: Irresponsible.
1: Exactly. Someone who should be ashamed of her decision. Meanwhile, the fetus should be treated like a full fully developed a human king. person <laughs> that to me is crazy and they were able to do this by by using this argument of human rights looking at no. it from that lens and that's where a lot of the anti-choice legislation has been able to come from is this idea of life begins at conception or fetus is a person and so therefore it has rights and and i want to mention this idea of the unborn right there's such a easy audience to love. They're, they're a great demographic, yeah, the unborn. They really Because are. <laughs> they will not criticize you, they are not real. And so you can act like you are protecting them and you can act like you have some sort of moral authority when really all you're doing is taking advantage of a group that doesn't really exist. So this idea of the unborn, you hear that a lot in their rhetoric, oh, we need to protect the unborn. <laughs> this is just another way of using language to- Words matter. Exactly to to put it in people's mind that this is a baby, right? And it's not a baby; it's a fetus. A baby is a cultural term. A fetus is a medical term. When you think of baby, you think of what comes out of the womb. You think of a fully formed yeah. baby, but that's not what's going on. And we'll get to that. But that's why words matter, as you said. It's so important to to think about that when you're thinking about the history of abortion in this country. And he mentioned something that made me really sad on page 107 he says it's impossible not to think constantly about the analogy of the limits on women's reproductive rights to slavery as an african-american man descended from slaves and raised in the south it is too easy for me to imagine what it's like to have no control over your body your destiny your life Mm. and that broke my heart because what we have here is is a comparison that we won't we don't ever want to make but that's what this is We're looking at a group of people who want to subjugate another, who want to have full control over women's bodies. And a democracy, I think, is defined by your own bodily autonomy. And the moment that people don't have rights over themselves, over their physical selves, then can you call it a democracy? I would argue that you can't.
0: Agreed. And I think a lot of European leaders right now are looking over at us and, and saying the same thing.
1: A lot of countries, I think, are baffled, yeah. And I think we should be embarrassed, Oh, frankly. You for know? sure. <laughs> we should feel embarrassed that we are in terrible company in the sense that since 1994, we are only in line with two other countries who have rescinded abortion rights, and that is Nicaragua and Poland. And that's not a good place to be. No. We're one of three countries that has made abortion harder. So we are most certainly. Taking a step back. I mean, this was the perfect ruling for the 1800s is really what it was. Yes. And it's appalling. But something that, you know, I I always kind of keep in mind as I'm thinking about this issue and I try not to get angry because I know that anger can push Push people people away. And, (laughs) but I also want to acknowledge that anger is such a natural feeling to have in this situation because Anger tells us when a boundary has been crossed. That's really what anger is. It's how we know that a boundary that we believe in has been crossed by somebody else. And so I have every right to be angry. And so what I want to tell everyone out there who's angry and who's afraid is that you have to channel that to have these kinds of conversations and to look at the history books and to understand that this is a conversation that needs your anger. Yes. Right? And that there's a... There's a moral argument to be made. And something that has always struck me as integral in this conversation, and one of the things that makes me the most angry, is when we think of a very natural biological process, which is procreation, as miraculous. That makes me very angry. It makes me very, very angry. Because as he says, when you think of procreation as miraculous, then any intervention in that process can be seen as desecrating and any choice against motherhood is going to be met with widespread disapproval. And so going back to what you said words matter. So when we when we talk about pregnancy as a miracle, it's it's annoying.
0: Yeah. It's it's just what happens. Right. Science. It's not anything out of this world. It's just nature taking its course.
1: It's just how it goes. And I understand that for some women it's incredibly hard to get pregnant and so I'm not trying to undermine or look at that experience as as not being important in that case, I can understand the use of the word. I can. But
0: it's also on a personal level, a exactly. miracle for you personally, not exactly. in general, not overall, like exactly. to the world.
1: Exactly. The process itself is not. And that brings us to this really important, important point which is that there's really no intrinsic moral value to becoming a mother or to not becoming one no and so a woman who pursues a pregnancy is just prioritizing her life around motherhood and a woman who has an abortion is prioritizing her life around not wanting to become a mother or perhaps, you know, around devoting herself and her resources to the children that she already has or to herself, etc. So when you stop thinking about motherhood as this higher moral calling, you also stop thinking of pregnancy as this thing that needs to be protected at all costs because it is miraculous, quote unquote. Okay. It needs to be thought of as a very natural thing that happens in life, it's a biological process. It has no m- intrinsic moral value. And that is something that I think more people need to realize or engage with or reflect on. Because the more that we attach morality to motherhood, the more that we allow for trap laws to sound mm-hmm. less crazy. And that's why when we were talking about the waiting periods, I was like, yeah, someone who someone who maybe doesn't know about this issue might not think it's no that bad. at
0: all. They're like, oh yeah. We have waiting periods sometimes on guns. I could understand an abortion. Right. Maybe in that, in that vein, they're thinking.
1: Right, exactly. And that's not really a normal way to think no. about this issue. And this At is all. The, really the only medical procedure that is legislated to this capacity. Exactly. Um, which, is, which is crazy. And, and it brings me like almost to tears when I think about that. But something else, and this brings us to our next topic, which I think is incredibly important. And that's the link between abortion and poverty. We live in a country that punishes people who are poor, uh, criminalizes people who are poor. And now by criminalizing women who need this care and who perhaps seek this care, if they become criminalized as well, then that's just an extension of the criminalization of poverty that we already are so used to in this country, I would say. But something that that always gets me is that abortion is not really just a women's issue. It's everyone's issue, but it's also an economic issue. Yes. Because oftentimes women who seek abortion seek them because they don't have the financial means to have a family, to support a family, to support maybe another child, whatever it may be. They might be in school. They might have other plans for themselves. Yeah. And everyone, everyone benefits from abortion. You don't know. Whether or not you're in a stable family home because maybe your mother had chosen to have an abortion before. You don't know that. People don't realize that like our mothers and the women who came before us had lives before us and that those decisions could have very easily then created the world that we live in today or the lives that we live in today. So abortion is something that affects people of all different generations. Sometimes you can't grow up and build wealth if you were forced to have a child. Sometimes being forced to have that child is what pushes you underneath the poverty line. So thinking about this as an economic issue is also incredibly important because there is a link between abortion And poverty, right? And he says something that I think is really beautiful. He says, I can truly relate to my patients. I understand how being poor and coming from a racially stigmatized group can threaten your sense of self-determination and agency. The women who come to me for abortions are choosing a path different from what others would script for them. Oh, And that's so important because nobody can claim to know better than you what you can and should be doing with your body and with your life. And he tells a really... Terrifying story. This one really stuck with me. About a woman who came in, and by one day, by one day, she had exceeded the the, the abortion ban in her state, and that was all because she was poor, because she didn't She's have the money to make it there, make it to the clinic, take time off, etc. So she exceeded the ban by one day because she was poor, and if she lived in another place with maybe less restrictive laws, Washington, for example, California, New York. You know, they could have probably done her counseling and performed her abortion all in the same day. But what we're seeing is that people are not just penalized because they're poor, but also because of where they live.
0: Yes. So it's like you're blessed if you're in California or New York, but just because you were born in Texas, for example... You're stuck with those laws and regulations and it's it's criminal, honestly.
1: Yeah. And it's not grounded in reality when you try and convince people that, well, you know, you have the ability to travel to another state. Because as we already discussed, that's not easy for people who need to find childcare, who maybe have scrapped just enough money for their abortion, but They would have to scrap a lot more if they have to go to another state and stay somewhere overnight because of these waiting periods, you know, so it's not grounded in reality when you say, oh, well, you know, it's great that we live in a country that you can just go to another state and in another state, you can get the care that you need. How can you argue that when every woman should have access to equal care agreed that equal access to care.
0: Yeah that comes from a, a place of privilege that kind yes. of thinking and it's it's just unfortunate that the people who are making these laws on our bodies are coming from places of privilege like that. It's also the same people who want you to have a baby. But then you don't have maternity leave. Right. You don't have um, child Childcare. care. <laughs> you don't have universal health care. And then um, education system. How's that going now? And then, you know, the mass shootings in schools on top of that. So when your child goes to school, the odds are, you know. Right. There's a lot of danger there. So right. it, it's just, it fascinates me just to no end on why they're forcing you to have this kid when that's kind of like, path you're going to lead down the line.
1: And it's so very much has to do with not only controlling women's bodies, but I think it also comes from this very misplace, like this, this place of anger, because what they, what they hate is women having sexual autonomy over their bodies. I think that it's a misplaced anger. And they know that this is one way to kind of punish women because it is about punishing women. It very much is because when it's actually, you're going to be in prison for a lot longer for getting an abortion than you are for raping somebody. Then yes, that's how you know, right? Definitely. That's how yeah. you know. If you're looking to punish abortion providers with more grave sentences than men who are predators, then we know, right? Yeah, like That's you're telling all you us, need to know. You're, <laughs> you're telling, telling us. Who's
0: the criminal in this case?
1: You're telling <laughs> us <laughs> and you know that and you... And you stand by that. And that's what makes me so angry. But when it comes to thinking about accessing abortion, it's also important to note something called the Hyde Amendment. And a lot of people don't know what this is. And a lot of people think about abortion. They've never even heard of the Hyde Amendment. And the Hyde Amendment essentially bars poor women from using Medicaid, which is their government-funded health insurance to pay for abortion. And in this way, it targets America's most vulnerable citizens, right? Because one in five women of reproductive age who live in poverty Um, are going to be affected by this. And this forces them either to find cash that they don't have, you know, to to terminate a pregnancy that they don't want or can't provide for. And it puts them in a position that is almost impossible. Mm. The Hyde Amendment also makes it so that federal dollars do not go to abortion. So what you have is women who are being punished, again, twofold, right? Because you are poor, you deserve less care, you deserve less access. And that to me is incredibly frustrating because so many of the people who think that this issue doesn't affect them, are, as you said, people who are coming from a position of privilege and they think, oh, well, this will never affect me because I live in California or I live in New York. Well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when the people who can't afford it and they come to your state and they're all flooding the abortion clinic because they have nowhere else to go? You, you're telling me that might not affect <laughs> you? And I just I just can't fathom that idea. No. That something not affecting you means that you shouldn't care about it.
0: I've never understood that. No, I don't get it either. But I think that goes back into capitalism and rugged individualism in this country. That if it's not affecting me, I don't really care about it. Right. And it's unfortunate.
1: And we're very much raised, I think, by the society to believe those things or yeah. to act on those things. And and that's why, for me, it's been really disheartening. Because even though we saw the overturning of Roe coming with the leaked you know, draft opinion. And even before that, even with the before, we knew the appointments were there. The it appointments just... were there, and, and we knew that this was certainly what they were aiming to do from the beginning um, with the appointments, of course, of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and, and Amy Coney Barrett. Amy. <laughs> I hate her the most, which is why we giggle. Um, I think it takes a truly disgusting human being to be the woman who comes into the court and takes. The rights oh, wait, of women yeah. away. I mean, I think it. You have to really, truly be quite She's
0: awful. She's a fucking super villain. She's a
1: super villain, a hundred percent. I think I, every time I think of her, I just I get really pissed. I can't even fathom it because even when you think back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the case that then it could have overturned Roe, but it didn't. It became essentially precedent on precedent, as Brett Kavanaugh said. But Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman on the Supreme Court. And she was the deciding vote. She could have easily overturned Roe versus Wade. And what they did with Casey was... Instead of overturning it, they just eroded it a bit. And so they made this, you know, they invented the clause of the undue burden. And so it made, it gave states the power to essentially pass laws that made it more difficult for women to access abortion. But as long as it wasn't an undue burden, which of course you can define as anything Anything, that you want. So it eroded Roe in a way, but it did keep it alive.
0: Yeah. It just chipped at it. It It chipped at it. It didn't kill it.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And I think that in part, and I will never know this, but I think in part it had to do with... I don't think that Sandra Day O'Connor wanted to be the woman who did this. I have to believe that in my heart of hearts, that regardless of what your political views are, that you don't want to be the woman who comes into a position of power, the first woman, and that you take the rights away of millions and millions of other women. I don't think that she could sleep at night. And in part, I think that that's why we ended up with a chipping away of Roe and not a full overturning. But Amy Coney Barrett feels no oh, such shame.
0: She has no heart. She feels She's a no fucking such shame. awful person. She's a
1: horrible person.
0: She should burn in a dumpster fire.
1: She's the worst. We feel very, very strongly <laughs> about Amy Coney Barrett here. Um, and I, I'm glad we touched on that because people also need to understand how our rights as women has always kind of hung in the balance in terms of the courts, right? Yeah, it, it, it always has been that. And that's a real shame because yeah. um, Rose Ro should, be <laughs> exactly. Ro should be codified and we should not be stressing out every single time there's an election. And that's why the other day I posted something a little crude, but I think I, I posted something along the lines of like, Hey, the huge, fuck you to everyone told me that I was, uh, being dramatic when Trump was elected. Right. Cause I was like, Oh, it's, it's not going to happen. Like Rose row, you know, oh. it's been a law for 50 years. Mm. It's going to be fine. I send a kiss to all the people <laughs> all who people. said that to uh, me, uh. because now I'm sitting here with less rights than I did.
0: Than than women had in school.
1: the in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. Going back in time. He leaves us off with what I think is a really great question. And he says, if you agree that certain medical conditions might justify abortion, then how can you exclude social or personal or financial decisions? And I think that that's a question that people need to reflect on. Yeah. If you think it's okay that a woman have an abortion because she was raped or because she was violated, then how can you exclude any other reason? Because what you're saying there is that you believe that a woman only has a right to her own body a- after it's been when violated.
0: It's so, and I oh, think you need
1: to reflect on that. Ugh,
0: I think people so really horrible. need to reflect on that. No, and I think that leads to it being such a slippery slope too. When people are like, oh, but there are exceptions. There's this. It's like, no Exceptions can erode, exceptions can be overturned and change. That's why it's important for abortion to be legal, period. Right. All across the board. Because every exception is in a gray area. It's a slippery slope. And it's just not it's not realistic to medical conditions. It's not realistic to what happens when you when you're getting an abortion and complications and that like there's too many things that could happen.
1: You don't want there to be barriers between your doctor and your care. Yes,
0: that's another. That's the concern, one that's and we've already been seeing that, right? We yes. saw
1: we saw recently a woman who came in with an ectopic pregnancy, and it and it ruptured. Yeah, and the doctor had to essentially call the hospital lawyer and say, "How are we dealing with this now?" Yeah, because this state has trigger laws. And so they had to wait until she was almost dead. Dead, basically
0: dead. And it's like. In order
1: to provide the care that she needed. And so what I don't want is to live in a country where there are barriers between my doctor and my care. Yeah. Especially as, as someone who experienced that relationship in a very, very, very special, but also terrifying way. Right. As, as a, as a living organ donor, I cannot imagine my doctor not having full authority and right to make decisions with me. Yeah. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine the law getting involved in no an attorney, my you and a
0: doctor sitting right. in a room like <laughs> what is that shit? I can't
1: imagine it. I can't imagine being in a situation where my doctor didn't have the capacity to help me.
0: Well, and they take an oath to help you to do no harm. To do no harm, and this, and this is, is this is harming people. Like waiting that long to give an abortion because you're like basically dying. You need to be near death for the attorney to okay it so you as a doctor don't go to prison?
1: Unbelievable. What kind of shit is that? Unbelievable. And I, and I hate to take this very uh, kind of turn, but that brings us to religious interpretations <laughs> 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 of abortion. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I have to do it. I have to do it because this is part of the reason why we're in this, uh, this conundrum. Kind of, yeah. And something that Dr. Willie Parker does really well in this book is talk about his own background as a a Christian and how he sees abortion work as being an abortion provider as a way of helping women, right? As giving them the opportunity to live the lives that they want and empowering women. And so I see that as a beautiful message. And he sees that as his interpretation of his religion. Mm -hmm. And I support that. And I wish that that was the way yes the more that more people more. um you know thought of thought of religion but something that he mentions which is really important is that the bible doesn't contain the word abortion anywhere in it nowhere okay the bible was codified in centuries when women were really only slightly more valuable than goats or sheep <laughs> okay women were property yeah. and they were bought and paid for with cash and like farm animals and household goods okay mm-hmm. it's so important
0: to note this. Yes, the, okay? the context of all this is, is very important for those religious people so out important. there.
1: And I've said this before, and this is like where my very annoying history background comes in. But the books that are in the Bible were also decided on in the Council of Nicaea, which was a group of men who decided which specific books they wanted to be included in the Bible. So this is, if you want to believe that the, that it's the inspired word of God... I can't argue with you. I, I, don't, I don't have a way of having that conversation with you, but what I can tell you is that history tells us exactly how the Bible came to be, why it has certain books in it, why others were excluded. The gospel of Mary Magdalene, for example, is not in the Bible. That was a decision that was made. That is a book that exists, but it was not included, right? A decision so, made by men. Of course. So the point that we're trying to make here is that the Bible is really kind of irre- irrelevant when we're having conversations about abortion and in the Bible, they do mention menstruation, if I'm not mistaken. And it was seen as a defiling and contaminating, disgusting thing, right? Which Mm -hmm. is still something that we see in some cultures and it's unfortunate, but if we dive into that, we'll be here all night. But what's interesting is that different religions have different interpretations. So for example, in Jewish scripture, a fetus becomes a human when and only when its head emerges from the birth canal.
0: Yes, a a full-cooked baby. A fully-cooked
1: baby coming out, according to Jewish scripture, is a baby. And so, are you not infringing on the rights of Jewish women with the overturning of Roe? I would argue that you are. Yes. Because Jewish women have a different religious interpretation. So, religious freedom for who in this country? For Christians.
0: Exactly. It's more like religious oppression
1: here. Exactly. And also, dare I say that (laughs) freedom of religion should also mean freedom from religion. As a person who is not religious, I should not be living under the laws of what Christian people believe to be right and wrong. That is not my business. That has nothing to do with me. I am not a Christian. I am not part of your Bible book club. I want nothing to do with this. I should have the right to live my life the way that I want to live it without any religious influence or obstruction or anything. And I don't understand how People seem to think that that's a lot to ask <laughs> because it's not. It's so
0: true. And it's like part of the greatness that's supposed to be this country is the separation of church and state, meaning that I am fighting for your right to practice whatever the fuck you want, whatever religion you want. But in the same token, like you're saying, that means I don't have to relate to that in any way, shape or form. I'm not going to believe in that any way, shape, or form, but I care that I have the right to my thing and you have the right to your thing. And that's just not happening in this day and age.
1: Completely. I will fight for you to have your right to believe in the Bible and in Christianity. If that's what you want to do. I think it's important that we live in a country where people have the power and the ability to do that without repercussion. I think that's incredibly important, but I do not believe under any, any circumstance that I should be living under what you define yeah. as morally correct according to your religion. Because religion has nothing to do with some of us. And it's incredibly problematic when what you're doing is creating essentially a precedent now with this new Supreme Court that religious freedom really only applies to Christians. Yeah, Because now what we're seeing is uh, in another case that they just decided on that you can bring prayer back into schools. But I would love to know what their reaction would be if this were a, a Muslim professor.
0: Agreed. <laughs> leading leading
1: their classroom in prayer. Yeah. I don't know that that would have been the same ruling is all I'm going to say no, about that.
0: No, I don't think so at all.
1: And what's really interesting is that here in the U.S., the history of abortion rights and the ability to access abortion is directly linked to religious leaders. And that's what I really, if, if people take anything from this episode today, I want it to be this. This needs to be it. As far back as 1967, when abortion was still illegal in the state of New York, the Reverend Howard Moody of Judson Memorial Church in New York City formed the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which was a kind of underground railroad, essentially, a coalition of Jewish and Christian clerics committed to helping women procure safe abortion care. And so an estimated 450,000 women called on the Clergy Consultation Service to help them for the six years before Roe was passed. It was religious leaders. It was Christian and Jewish clerics who were helping women access the care that they needed. What the fuck went (laughs) wrong? Right? It's insane. I just, I can't fathom it. I can't fathom it. I saw this really incredible documentary called Trapped and Dr. Willie Parker is in it. Um, it. It's amazing. And there's another one called Reversing Row, also fantastic, right, if you're looking to learn more about this topic. But some of the clerics do appear entrapped, and they talk about how they didn't realize that part of their job was to become essentially abortion counselors, and that they were being led into kind of the intimate lives of women by having these conversations with them and helping them access the care that they needed. And I see that as, I see that as the role of religion. Yeah. I see the role of religion being a place that is compassionate and kind and understanding and loving. And because it's not those things, that's why I reject it fully and wholeheartedly and always have. But I think that every once in a while you come across stories like this and you realize that there are people in it for all the right reasons. Yeah. And for me, the story of the clergy consultation is that example. It makes me think twice whether you know about why i'm so harsh
0: yeah (laughs) you know about
1: religion but it's incredible to think that on manhattan's upper east side the first abortion clinic in the country was founded by the clergy
0: no it's amazing and that's that's the way it should be really it should be a separate topic from from religion it's abortion is a medical procedure yes the same as you going in to have a surgery to remove a tumor to get chemotherapy. Done. It's just a medical procedure. Yes. It's has nothing to do with God and Jesus and the Bible and, and burning in hell because he murdered a baby.
1: But you know, I think that like right now, what you just said reminds me, like maybe on our side, what we haven't done right is presented as healthcare properly. Yeah. I think that we've been on the defensive for a really long time and we've been trying to argue against some of their really, really crazy arguments mm-hmm. and their crazy Facts. I yeah, see that with yeah. you know, very facts. sarcastic air quotes. <laughs> but I think that maybe on our side, what we haven't done is present this as health care. We haven't been good about articulating exactly why abortion is healthcare. Yeah. And that might be a good way to move Definitely. this conversation forward. Yeah. And I think that actually seamlessly brings us into what is our our final section, which is medical facts about this procedure and statistics. And so all of this, we not only fact-checked it, but we got it from Life's Work. The book, yeah. The book. Directly so this is directly from a doctor. The scientist doctor um, source. And he's also great in that he shares his sources as well in the yeah. book. And so we were able to feel very, very confident. Not that I ever doubted him, but for the sake of us repeating his message, I thought it was important for us to do our due diligence. And, and I've just been very, very diligent about this episode (laughs) in particular because I wanted to make sure we did this right. But what I think is really fascinating when we're thinking about the kind of medical reality of what abortion is, right? We have to think about who gets abortions. And first of all, I wanna say, we've been using the term women this whole time. We do mean to be inclusive and we mean all All, people who can become pregnant. So that includes trans men, for example. Exactly. Um, We've been saying women as a way to kind of shorthand it, but anyone who can get pregnant is someone who can at some point need an abortion. And statistically, a third of American women have had or will have abortions. That is 33% yeah. of your neighbors, yeah. of your friends. Your family. Um, I always say this, I always say, you love someone deeply who has had an abortion. You might just not know it. Yeah. You might just not know it because women don't go out into the world and share these stories because we know that what's waiting for us is stigma is shame
0: guilt from others judgment
1: judgment in the worst possible way and so i i just think it's important to note why you don't hear these stories you you think you don't know someone who's had an abortion i absolutely guarantee you that you do
0: the stats are right there the stats are right there no arguing them
1: of american women and planned parenthood which was when Dr. Parker wrote the book, as it is today, is the largest single provider of reproductive health services, including abortion, in the United States, which is where we get a lot of the defund Planned Parenthood, a lot of the violence that you see at Planned Parenthood clinics. You see Planned Parenthood vilified. It's because Planned Parenthood is, is the largest single provider of reproductive health services. Now, you have to ask yourself why. America is one of the few uh, countries <laughs> where you have to go to a standalone clinic to access care. And that's because hospitals can lose their funding for providing abortions. Yeah, like we
0: mentioned earlier with the federal funding.
1: Exactly. The Hyde Amendment is definitely linked in this case. But it's it's interesting when you think about how you have to go to standalone clinics to access very basic medical care. That's not really the case with almost any other med- basic medical procedure, no. you know. I don't have to go to a standalone clinic to get my tonsils removed, right? Because it's not something that's legislated. But in America, you have to go to a, s- a standalone clinic to access care because it's the only way to provide that service and the people who own abortion clinics run them as sort of small businesses yeah. essentially. And so according to a 2011 study that was published in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology, just 14% of OBGYNs perform abortion, although 97% say that they've met with patients who want them. Yeah. Almost all patients. Almost all All. patients. Almost all patients want access to abortion care, even if that just means seeking information or speaking to an abortion provider. And so 94% of abortions are performed in this country in specialized clinics, Right. Like the ones that Dr. Willie Parker works in. Uh, he travels to different clinics yeah. in order to to provide as much care to as many people yeah, as possible. all over the South. And so what's really crazy is that if you think, too, about it, a third of these are done in Planned Parenthoods, which is, as I mentioned, the, the nation's largest abortion provider. And the rest are these lone yeah. clinics and That to me is, um, I mean, I have so much respect for these abortion providers and for these these incredible heroes who own these small businesses and who, despite the amount of trap laws thrown their way, they still do everything in their power. To, to create a space, a safe space for women to come and get the care that they need. And Trapped really talks about this, the documentary. I mean, it, it follows different abortion providers and it chronicles kind of the trials and tribulations of these different abortion clinics. And you see just how hard they have to work to keep themselves up to date on the law, yeah. make sure they don't get shut down.
0: No, it's crazy. Everything from the waiting period, as we said, to the type of materials you give the patient to talking to the patient about certain facts, air quotes again, within their Mm -hmm. abortion, making sure that they dispose of the fetus elements properly. And just there's a lot of hoops that they have to jump through just to make sure that they don't get shut down.
1: Exactly. And that's what trap laws are designed to do, to make it impossible for them to sustain their business. But what I think Willie Parker does really well in this book is he talks about the difference between every week, Really? Yes. In the process. There's a
0: huge difference. There's a huge difference. Between each time frame.
1: So he says, before 22 weeks, a fetus is not in any way equal to a baby or a child.
0: At all. I cannot
1: emphasize that enough. It cannot survive outside the uterus because it cannot breathe, not even on a respirator. Okay? It cannot form anything like thoughts, and up until 29 completed gestational weeks, despite what anti-choice people (laughs) may say to you, the scientific consensus is that it cannot feel anything like pain. Okay? This is coming from a doctor. This is coming from a scientist. As I mentioned earlier, the term baby is a cultural term. It is not a medical term. What the word baby does is it makes you envision something in your mind. And so it makes you more sensitive to the idea of an abortion. But the reality is that we're talking about fetuses. We're
0: talking about cells
1: Something, together. Exactly. Something I thought was really interesting, this idea of the, the fetal heartbeat, <laughs> it doesn't mean that there's a fully formed heart. No. It just means that the cells can generate enough electricity to create that sound. That's all that is. It's it's proof of development.
0: Yeah. But the, it's the not progress, a fully formed heartbeat. The progress of the fetus and the pregnancy, but it can't, it cannot survive. Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. And Something else about the procedure is that there are different types, right? There's medication abortion, which is now becoming a much more popular way of terminating a pregnancy because you do it at home. It's a two-dose process, very, very, very easy, and it allows you to terminate your pregnancy in the privacy of your own home without, with very, I would say, minimal discomfort, minimal pain. But I would say that abortion is never totally painless, right? Um, Dr. Parker talks about this, it's physically uncomfortable regardless of which procedure you get. And sometimes of course it can be painful like anything else. And because of this, it's doubly important, right? That patients continue to have not just legal access to safe abortions, but practical access in in, in the sense that doctors should be trained in sufficient numbers to be able to provide this care. Right. And to do it as quickly and painlessly as possible. Right. So that that way you're not forcing women to put their body in the hands of amateurs or risking their own lives by trying to terminate their own pregnancies. And we saw that a lot before the decision of Roe.
0: Yeah. No abortions are always going to happen, whether they're legal or not. I have a friend who's a gynecologist. He's been practicing for decades and decades. And when Roe was overturned, they started looking back at textbooks from the 50s and 60s to see how doctors back then dealt with these botched back alley abortions and to be able to provide the emergency care that they needed to think about what did we do back
1: then? Because we're going to have to do it now. That's depressing. It's so sad. That's depressing as hell. And the worst part is that before Roe, you were dealing with women... We're dying of sepsis, bleeding Mm -hmm. out, internal injuries, you name it. But now I think what we're looking towards is far worse because that will happen. But also, we're living in, in an age of digital mass surveillance. Yes. So the criminalization of women trying to access the scare or self terminating could lead us down what I think is a terrifying, terrifying path. I mean, a form of policing the womb that we've never seen. Before.
0: Yeah. I was talking to my friend the other day. um, The White House put out a statement about the period trackers. Right. Making sure that you're not using them because everyone's surveilling you. And she's like, well, what's that about? And I told her like there is no distinct like you can't decipher between a miscarriage and an abortion.
1: Right. They're, they're treated the they're same treated way. They're treated the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, having taking the abortion pills and going and having a miscarriage. They're treated exactly the same. A, a doctor cannot look and, and tell whether you did one <laughs> or the other. So if there's a suspicion that you had an abortion, you could be criminalized in some you could states, be prosecuted, you could be prosecuted mm-hmm. put in prison, and it's it's happened in South America and it can very well happen here now.
1: Absolutely. And I don't doubt that it will. it will. I don't doubt that it will. And that's why I think that people really need to protect themselves. Like, please delete your period trackers, as you said, you know, don't, you know, this is a horrible thing to say, but maybe, you know, if you are pregnant, I mean, keep it, keep that to the list of people that you really trust. Yeah. Right. Keep you it know, to yourself. keep it to yourself until you, you've decided what you want to do. You know, the last thing that we want is to put people in positions where they could be prosecuted or get in trouble. So I think people just need to be really, really aware of how these laws could affect them. And just be be aware of exactly yeah, what's and happening. And they all vary
0: from state to state. Exactly. So you need to know what you're dealing with in your own state. I mean, Florida, on its, on its own, we were going to have the 15-week ban yeah. and then it got stalled. And now I'm not sure where it is now.
1: I think they just... They had blocked it and now it's no longer blocked. So I think it will go in effect. 15 weeks is incredibly early. It's super um, early. It's tough. I mean, like, for example, a vacuum aspiration abortion, which is very, 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 very simple, low risk procedure that can be performed to terminate any pregnancy up to 16 weeks. You know, it's simpler than a colonoscopy or even a, a tooth extraction, right? The, <laughs> the risk of complications that result in hospitalizations is lower than 1%. Yeah. And that's something that you can do up to 16 weeks, right? A, a vacuum aspiration abortion. So depending on how far along you are, you have different options, right? The earlier, the better, because yeah. you can do a medication abortion, which I would argue is probably the most comfortable. I think some people maybe don't like the idea of terminating their pregnancy at home or being alone. And so, you know, at least from there, you have options to be with someone or doing it, do it at the clinic. But the earlier, the better. But of course, as we've already discussed, there can be women who want to have a uh, an abortion early, but they don't have the means to do it. Exactly. Right? So I just wanted to note that because the reality is, is that abortion is an incredibly safe medical procedure. It's one of the safest. It's something that can be done yeah. at a standalone clinic because it is so minimal. And it's something that very, very rarely results in complications. So it's just important to... To, to note that. Another statistic that I think is really important because we hear a lot of rhetoric that has to do with late term abortions, Ugh. or sometimes I hear a, a very stupid term that is not a real scientific term, and that's partial birth abortion. I really want to tackle that right now because I know that a lot of religious people like to use those terms. Only 9%, 9% of abortions nationwide are performed beyond the first trimester, okay? So... This is incredibly important because we hear a lot of legislation passed because, you know, oh my God, how can you perform an abortion so late? Well, that's barely ever the case. And that rhetoric is incendiary. It's just there to create debate and to cause problems. Because the reality is, is that women who have abortions in the second trimester usually... Either they couldn't afford it in the first, and they were scraping up the money, and now, ironically, it's going to be even more expensive, right? Or sometimes what happens is that you just don't know if there are any issues with the fetus. You know, very often anomalies are not discovered until after 20 weeks, because up until that point, major organ systems are too small and indistinct for sonogram technology to capture. So to paint a very clear picture, in the states that have passed 20-week abortion bans since 2010, a woman carrying a fetus with a strong heartbeat, but afflicted with a condition that consigns it, inevitably to death, immediately, right, upon birth, cannot choose to legally terminate her pregnancy. And that's
0: that's horrifying. Can you imagine carrying that fetus and then having to give birth to something that's going to die it's, right away?
1: It's unethical. It's, it's horribly. It's completely, completely unethical. And that's the part that I think people don't want to talk about um, on the anti-choice side. They don't want to talk about what that means when you're really, really thinking about how abortion affects women in their second and third trimester. And I think it's important that what you just said, the
0: anti-choice, because I don't want people to continue the rhetoric of pro-life. Right. Because they are not pro-life. The the situation we're describing right now is not pro-life. It's pro-choice and anti-choice. Right. And that's all.
1: And that's, and and I'm so glad that you brought that up because as you said earlier, right, words matter. This idea of pro-life would mean that what we're pro-death, right? Like it's so (laughs) silly, right? It's It's such a silly kind of way of thinking about it. I think that to be pro-choice is to be pro-life. Agreed. Because I am pro-life of the living, breathing woman who's standing at the clinic and asking for help. I am pro-life because I believe that that woman has every single right in the world to make a decision about her own body so that she can live the life that she wants. Because I don't see women as walking wombs. Yeah. (laughs) Women are human beings with dreams and aspirations and wishes and desires to live the life that they want to live for themselves. And I have not, I mean, I refuse to believe that I have fought and the generations of women have fought for this much progress only to be put back in my metaphorical place of being a potted plant. (laughs) It's just absurd. And Dr. Parker, this one really killed me. I don't know if you remember this particular story, but he talks about a very religious woman whose child or whose fetus, excuse me, had Potter syndrome, which is a a dramatic increase of amniotic fluid in utero, which is usually related to the failure of the kidneys to, to develop properly. And so abortion would normally have been the recommended course, right? But this woman was a fundamentalist Christian. And so she opted to bring the pregnancy to term because as she said to Dr. Parker, she was praying for a miracle. And this baby was born at 39 weeks, a girl And Dr. Parker describes that he stood by and watched in horror as she died. She must have felt all the anxiety and panic that would accompany suffocating to death. In this case, the absolute reverence for life led to a situation that in my eyes consisted of nothing less than pure cruelty.
0: No, I remember that. That was horrifying to listen to and imagining that
1: happening. I can't can't understand that. I can't understand it. I... I don't understand why people believe that God, right? People who do believe in God, that God would be so meddlesome. Yes. (laughs) What, what kind of God do you believe in that you think that it would be his decision that that baby would survive or not? What kind of religion do you, are you a part of if that's what you think yeah. Should
0: happen. Some divine intervention on that one baby. Instead of. That you already were told wasn't going to make it.
1: Instead of having faith in science, which to me is such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Science has given us and granted us the ability to do so many things. It's why we live longer. It's why we are able to very oftentimes live the life that we want, despite our illnesses, our ailments, yeah. et cetera. It's why we have been able to serve so many of us survive a pandemic yeah, because of vaccines. And so I just find it really disheartening when I hear stories like that not only because yeah, it's really horrible to think of a child dying in that way because at that point it is a child it is. yeah, but the fact that people would want to believe in something that just is not real. there's no reversing Potter syndrome. no this is just the reality of the situation and it's and it's horrible and and dr parker even says he's like this is a a fact until 29 weeks a fetus cannot feel anything like pain so all of these anti-choice people who are saying don't kill your baby right (laughs) already problematic enough that you're using the word baby and then you know oh your baby's gonna feel pain none of this is true none of this is true i cannot fear mongering i cannot emphasize this enough and i I hope that I've really kind of brought the point home because we can't keep having this argument and conversation with people who refuse to see the very basic facts of what abortion is, right? So we need to we need to have these conversations from a rational and scientific based perspective. And and lastly, I wanted to make one more comment before we move on to the wine. I wanted to, t- to end this on on medication abortion really quick because I think that in many ways that's the future. You know, wide availability of mifepristone, which is one of the drugs that's used for medication abortion. I mean, that's really the anti-choice's worst nightmare. Yeah. Right. For there to be wide availability of it because it could allow for women to terminate their pregnancies in private with the consultation of their doctors without ever having to go to a clinic. And so this means that all of these people who like to picket outside, they're not going to have fences to do that on. No. They're not going to have places on which to hang their gruesome signs. Exactly. And so when you take the physical location away, what you're doing is you're providing less of an opportunity for anti-choice maniacs yes. to come out and to harass women harass and doctors.
0: People threaten places with yeah. bombings and just, all, all the horrible scare tactics they use in trying to get you to keep your
1: fetus. Yeah. Well, four doctors have been killed. Yeah. Um, it's In horrifying. the name of God.
0: It's, it's the irony behind that is just, it's ridiculous. I can't believe they don't see it that way.
1: It's horrific to think, and and Dr. Tiller, who we didn't have a chance to talk about, Dr. Tiller was killed. He was one of the few abortion providers in the country who provided abortions in third trimester when absolutely necessary. That requires a different level of training. By the way, yeah, yeah. Um, the farther along a pregnancy gets, the more specific yeah, the training specific gets for you, to, yeah. exactly, for you to be able to exactly you able to perform this abortion. So it takes. A doctor like Dr. Tiller, there, I, I believe there's only three clinics right now in the country that can perform third trimester abortions if absolutely necessary. And Dr. Tiller was assassinated in his church. He was yeah. shot <laughs> at church, church in, the all name, places. in the name of God for so-called murdering babies. A man who provided essential care to women who were already having a hard enough time. Because let's make one thing extremely clear. Women who have abortions in the third trimester, they had bought a crib. They had a name. These are women who had every intention, every single intention of going through with that pregnancy. And unfortunately, they received the most horrible medical news and they had to make an incredibly difficult decision. And how dare you try and legislate that? And that's why I get so pissed. Yeah, Because it's not your fucking choice. It's her choice. And that's why I think medication abortion is the future.
0: Yeah, that's the way to go with widespread access. And it's it's the way to do it. It's
1: the way to do it. There are many, many, many different organizations that provide information based on your state on how to access medication abortion. I think it's the future. I think over 20% of abortions now in this country are done in this way. And I just want to encourage people to research it so that they're aware that that is an option, especially if you live in a state where you don't have a clinic. You can actually even get your medication abortion drugs forwarded from a PO box if you live in a state where you cannot access them or they cannot be sent directly to you. So just please, I just urge everyone to do as much research as they can on medication abortion because it might be one day a resource that you need um, or someone that you know, a friend, a family member. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I want people to have as many resources. We want as many people to have as much information as possible. I want to thank everybody who has been vocal about this fight. I know that there are so many people that have been protesting and marching and posting and donating. And we are happy to share resources of places where you can donate and where you can provide support for others. So I just want to thank everyone who's doing that. And those of you who are choosing to stay silent, I just want to say that you're no different than those who are on the anti-choice side. I guarantee you that at some point in your life you have benefited from an abortion, maybe not your own, Yeah. but it's important to stand by women right now. It's important to stand by all of our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters as well, because we know that their rights also hang in the balance. And first they come for the women and then they come for everyone else. So we need to band together. Yeah, and definitely. I know that's a somber way to end but this isn't the end. This is where our fight begins.
0: Exactly. And we're, we're fighting together and banding together to ensure that nothing more gets eroded. And then when we move in the opposite direction back into progress,
1: a hundred percent. And we dedicate this episode to all the abortion providers, doctors, like Dr. Willie Parker, like Dr. Tiller, who have dedicated their lives or even given their lives. For this cause, we deserve to have more abortion providers, abortion providers are heroes, people who work at abortion clinics and they answer the phones and they refer you to other clinics yeah. because theirs are closed. Or the they're escorts, for, the escorts, the, the escorts incredible too. clinic escorts who make you feel safe and heard and loved. These are our heroes. These they're are our heroes. Are. And so we dedicate this episode to them. Me too. Cheers. Cheers! Cheers to them. And now we move on to drinking this phenomenal wine, and now we'll be in a better mood. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I know need we need a we pour. need to top
0: off there because I was just going through all these talking points and and reliving the book and our lives over and over with this. It's just it's it's disheartening. So it's it's good to be able to have these conversations and hope that we could one day move forward in a better in a better position. We will. Yeah, we definitely will. We will. Because if not, we're all moving.
1: A hundred percent. I I will gladly. I'm accepting applications for wealthy men who live in the European Union <laughs> if they would like to take me out of this hellhole. Um, I'm listening
0: country that's not a democracy anymore. right exactly it's a fake democracy. <laughs> fake democracy
1: it's a third world country wearing a gucci belt <laughs> that's what i've always said uh, well i'm so glad
0: we have this wine here i wanted to pick a wine like i said produced by people who are pro-choice and who believe in women and empowering women so it was great to be able to find someone so vocal about it Uh, Tank Winery has been very vocal about it with merchandise and selling bottles. This is part of their Tank Cares label, which they're raising a dollar from every bottle sold in support of women's rights organizations. They have three that they follow right now. UN Women, a global organization fighting for gender equality, feminine empowerment and ending violence against women. Um, We didn't touch upon it, but a lot of these abortions too deal with abusive partners. And that's another gray area for Dr. Willie Parker because he will not perform an abortion if he believes a woman is coerced by a a domestic partner.
1: That's such an important point. It's such an and that and that brings me to a point that I actually I wanted to make and I didn't include it in our notes here. But when I when I signed up to become a living organ donor for my brother. For his kidney transplant, you know, I was asked many times in my psych evaluation and my social worker evaluation if I was being threatened, <laughs> manipulated, worse, blackmailed. I mean, they used every word in the book. And in this instance, right, in my situation, quite literally, I was I was saving someone's life. Right. There's there's no I feel weird saying that, but that's exactly what I did. I used my body to save another body. And even then I was not forced to do so. Yeah. I was not forced to do something with my body that I didn't want to do to save a living, breathing human being. So how can you make that same argument for women, for a pile of cells that is not a fully formed human yet, right? So I wanted to throw that out there again, yeah. because that's another way of thinking about it from a medical perspective too, right? This is something that we need to look at from, from every From angle. all
0: angles, yeah, yeah, to be able to, to understand it, because there is so much that's gray, and yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, um, and then the second organization is FOS Feminista, which aims to build awareness of women's health and reproductive rights, what we were speaking about today. I love
1: that. I love that.
0: And then the third is Center for Reproductive Rights, a global organization advocating for reproductive rights everywhere. And that's important, incredibly important, because as you said, we now are at the ranks with Poland and Nicaragua with rescinding these abortion care rights. As
1: a Nicaraguan, I can tell you that we're in bad company. Yes, very, <laughs> very- <laughs>
0: Oh gosh, so just to get a little bit of background behind this wonderful winery, Tank Garage Winery opened in 2014 and they didn't really know if their vision was going to pan out. They are very much a, a black sheep, I would say, in terms of the wineries that are in Napa Valley. Um, they're kind of edgy and and even their, their winery is like an old garage gas station looking thing and they're very into funky different wines and, and creating cool, unique blends. So they're not the typical, <laughs> they're not what you think of when you go to Napa and you're on a wine journey there. You end up
1: in a garage. Yeah, a
0: garage. And you're just like, oh, where did I go? <laughs> Very vintage fun vibes. And luckily, word of mouth uh, spread and they found their audience. So they built tank for, for dreamers and for those people looking to defy conventions, a winery that celebrates misfits, bootleggers, and daredevils. So us. Us, basically, in a nutshell. <laughs> And their goal is to make wines that add to the collective conversations. Wine with a soul and purpose, which I think is very much what we do here with the podcast. And I think part of sustainability in wine is not only caring about how the plants how the plants are grown or what you're doing to help the environment, but also how you treat your workers, how you treat the public, how you treat the people around you and the space. So I think they do a really good job of, of that front with Um, keeping the conversation open with all of these these care labels that they have where they donate to different uh, causes this is just one cause but they also donate to different things like lgbtq plus rights coronavirus when that first started they had a pandemic relief fund there's a slew of different causes that they represent. And I believe to to date, they've raised $60,000 for all these causes through their
1: wine. That's incredible. We have to really make sure we're promoting them and sharing the link to purchasing this wine so people can, can get involved. I mean, it's funny. Like I just, I just love that a winery sees themselves as a way of people getting involved. I get to drink delicious wine, Yeah. but I feel great about the fact that my money is going to a great winery. That's, that's so different, but also putting their money where their mouth is. Yes. I mean, it's such a great initiative.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I was so glad to find them. I want to talk a little bit about this wine in particular. It's called La Loba, the wolf woman, the collector of bones. So this is the story with the wine. With her voice, she sings new life into that which has been scattered, lost, and discarded. The story of La Loba has its roots within the indigenous peoples of northern Mexico and the southwestern United States. Though her story can be found across cultures, the wild feminine reminds us that there's great power in, so- in the song inside us, and though we may be bruised, burned, or injured, our soul and spirit can never be destroyed. Which I think that's all pretty badass, <laughs> and pretty pretty much defines us as women. Women yeah. are always gonna be these people. I mean, just the way our country is. Women yeah. are not first class. Citizens
1: At all. There's always, there's always been a boot on our neck, yeah. right? And we've still managed to thrive mm-hmm. to, I mean, we've been able to do absolutely everything. And when we haven't, it's because we've been barred from it. And even then we've opened those doors for ourselves. So I love that. That's like I a love rallying cry.
0: Yes. We're resilient as fuck. Mm-hmm. And I'm here for it. You guys can't see the label, but if you go on Instagram, you could see the label Um, It's sourced from the artist Flora from Argentina, and in her words, Lobas Despertando" was born in the height of feminism here in Argentina in 2018, as a force that I felt reflected in this form of human animal. I drew it with microfiber, simple lines, but with the force of a wolf wolf pack that woke up. After a few years, this reversal arises in a digital way, thinking as a small tribute to my maternal grandmother, a victim of femicide. Wow. Yes, it's definitely. It's really powerful. No, and it's it's a beautiful label. It's a
1: beautiful label.
0: It's like a woman, part woman, part wolf, bent over, kind of like angry, but then there's this floral component beautifully sketched in that's kind of like feminine, but savage and just like angry as fuck, but still kind of empowered. There's and- something
1: very soft about her stance, in comparison to the wolf head, yes, you know she's she's all things. Sometimes we we forget that that women we're everything. We're we're soft and we're feminine, but we're strong and we have the capacity to achieve all things. And I I love that that's what the label essentially is. Yeah, it's an encompassing of everything that we are.
0: Definitely, I I love the the art perspective from you.
1: I'm always I'm always gonna drop the, always art love perspective. the art
0: perspective. <laughs> And so the grapes for this wine are sourced from the hills of El Dorado County in California. Uh, The soils there are mineral rich. um, They have mineral rich deposits and they have a large, um, climate has a large diurnal swing from night to day. So the temperature changes drastically, which helps create interesting flavors and acidity in this wine. So one thing I'd like to point out, which is very, very odd and different, is that this is a carbonic white wine, which is super unusual like that only really happens with red wine. It usually works there. So what that means is carbonic maceration kind of works its fermentation magic with the grapes from fermenting the inside out without oxygen or added yeast. And this process, like I said, is usually used for red grapes, but skin contact on certain white grapes combined with lower acidity levels can bring out like funky and unique and different flavors, which we kind of have talked about pre-taping as we were sipping on this wine to begin with yeah and this is an interesting blend we like funky here so this is a blend of 45% Chenin Blanc 44% Petit Mansang 10% Bianchetta Trevigiana, and 1% Orange Muscat so (laughs)
1: Very strange,
0: very strange. Lots, lots of blending going on here. So we are going to take a peek at the wine. It's pale yellow in color, very clear, not cloudy at all. And then we're gonna, we're gonna sniff
1: it. So funny anecdote, (laughs) Alexa has this fantastic book um, by Wine Folly, which is this great guide to all things wine. And she brought it so that I could see it because I've been learning about wine slowly but surely. And she showed me this page that has all the different aromas, right? It's got yeah. the wine aromas, primary and secondary and tertiary aromas. So all new things to me. And at one point, I'm you know i looking at all of them and it says bubblegum. And I was like, <laughs> this is bullshit. This is someone making stuff up. No wine smells like fucking bubblegum. This is such a lie and then she uncorks sure this masterpiece and i sniff it and i go i'll be damned it smells like fucking bubble gum and it really does it really
0: does the, the first note we totally got was bubble gum and i was just cracking up because we were going through the whole aroma wheel and she's like this bullshit this stupid lead pencil what the fuck and then like yeah,
1: lead pencil i mean someone's got to agree with me. On crushed that one. gravel yeah someone's got to agree with me on those but bubblegum i was shocked i mean this wine smells delicious i mean you immediately yeah. know it's going to be just like really 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 funky and different from the smell it smells so good
0: no it smells so good so we got the bubblegum um we got some lemon in there i wouldn't say fresh lemon maybe maybe like marmalade or something some floral yeah it's, it
1: smell it's you've got a, a kind of sweetness to yeah. it
0: Lots going on in the bouquet. Smells delicious and delightful.
1: It's hella funky.
0: Yeah. No, it's good. And then you get kind of like you get the creaminess on the palate. Lots of interesting complexity there. You get some citrus there. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally lots of citrus. I'd say some stone fruit. Like peach or apricot, but yeah, definitely nice creamy citrus vibes. Definitely. And it's delicious acidity. Let's see. Acid check.
1: <laughs> the most awkward test of all.
0: <laughs> I would say it's like medium plus mm-hmm. to high minus. It's yeah. like in between. It's not like super like razor acidic, but it's, yeah. it has nice has nice body on it too. It's dry, which I should have mentioned first, but whatever's dry.
1: Which I always like.
0: Mm-hmm. I always prefer. Yeah, at least I would say it's medium. Yeah, we only really like our our rieslings with some sweet, you know, off dry and
1: off. Yeah, and, and if that. Yeah, like if you give me a bone dry riesling, I'm also thrilled.
0: Yeah, so this and there's like some minerality in here too that that completes it, and it has a pretty, I would say, decent finish. It's it's pretty long. It's still in my mouth right now as we're chatting. Definitely. And you could buy this off their website for $38. So it is a little um pricier for some. Um, I feel like an everyday wine for me at least that I could drink, no issues. Not really right. being, you know, a shame that I opened an expensive bottle. I feel like $25 is an everyday. This is a 38. So It could be a nice one for, you know, something that's not a weeknight, you know, a weekend wine, maybe. Um, I feel like this could pair, interestingly, because there's so much in here.
1: So much. And I think it's also a great, um, something that you sometimes touch on, too, is, you know, what do you take to a friend's house, right? Mm -hmm. I think if you're... Going over someone's house who is really interested in these particular issues, introducing them to this wine I think is cool because you're introducing them to a wine that tastes great and that probably pairs with a lot of things, which I know you're going to touch on, but also I think encourages people to get more involved and will encourage more people to buy it because it serves such an incredible social purpose. Yeah,
0: all of their wines have amazing labels. Most of them have amazing stories and causes that go with them. So I think this is a perfect kind of dinner party, conversation wine, even at that. (laughs) It's a
1: conversation starter for sure.
0: Yes. And it's, it's delicious. I feel like it's a good summer wine too. I mean, granted, I would drink this all year long where we live.
1: Right. We live in (laughs) Miami, as most of you know, and it's hot here all year. Um, So we're always looking for wine that's refreshing Mm -hmm. that you can drink you know, both outside in the sun, but also, you know, when it's maybe a little bit chillier, you know, like 65. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but this is great um, wine. I would pair it with many things, maybe like fish or shrimp or a nice. Um, I'm actually curious because they ha- it has a big percentage of Chenin Blanc, which sometimes I like pairing with Indian food. So I'm curious to see how this would play off something like that, too. Right. So cuz it cuts the spice. Yeah, yeah, the spiciness. I mean, this one's pretty dry. Usually it's kind of like an off dry that I, but maybe I I'm curious now. Now I want to get another bottle and try it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's it's fantastic. I I really like it and I also want to say for all the people who get freaked out by the term creaminess because some people maybe think, oh, that sounds odd for a wine. As as a person who yeah, doesn't yeah, know yeah. as much about wine, right, that word can sound kind of like, oh, that sounds like it doesn't fit in with all the other descriptions or adjectives that Alexa used. Um you know, it's not something to to fear. It's 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 something that I think is to be embraced. I think some people you can even describe some champagnes as, as creamy, yeah, right? So definitely. definitely not something to to fear or fret. I think it's just a different element to to get to know in a wine. Exactly. It's 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 more about
0: feel feeling textures in your mouth. Not necessarily that you're drinking cream. It's just feeling the difference in your mouth from drinking water or, or no let me do the traditional the traditional way of gauging it so it's the difference in your mouth of drinking skim milk versus whole milk so when you're drinking skim milk, you'll notice that it's kind of watered down, very liquidy. You could swish it around very quickly, no issues. And when you're drinking whole milk, there's more body to it. There's more weight to it in your mouth. You you feel it around your mouth, more coating your mouth almost more because of its heaviness. So that's kind of what um, we're saying here. It has like a creaminess to it because it's not just kind of flat and, and flabby and liquidy. It's more... There's more body to it and you feel it feels a little bit heavier in your mouth. So that's kind of what, what we mentioned when it's cream. We're not talking about literal cream.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important to know because so many of our listeners, I think, are learning about wine for the first time through this podcast um, and hearing different phrases and different ways to describe wine that they might not be familiar with. So I love that we're kind of allowing for a little bit of a teaching moment. Yes.
0: Oh, well, this was such a great conversation, a very important... Important conversation. And I urge you all to stay vigilant on this topic. Knowing what your state right is right now is super important, huge, not just for you if you're pregnant, but also with contraceptive. That's the next thing. I I didn't want we didn't want to get dark with that. But that's kind of part of the next step in this control on women, this war on women.
1: hundred percent. You know, we, we need to be really v- vigilant because what we don't want is for this to open the door for, you know, other cases, other Supreme Court cases to be revisited, as, as Clarence Thomas hinted in his yeah. portion of the majority opinion. You know, he he wants us to rethink same-sex relationships, uh, same-sex marriage and contraception. And so we need to be very vigilant because sometimes what happens is that there are laws passed here and there, little things, conversations. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, you know, you're in a really, really bad spot. And so contraception, I think, is essential to the livelihood of women. You know, we, we need to take that as seriously. So, yeah, I, I agree. Stay, stay vig- vigilant because you never know when someone around you is going to need help. We're happy to share resources and information. We're trying to use this episode as an opportunity to share as much of that as possible. There there are a lot of really great organizations like Plan C Pills, for example, that are educating people on what their options are based on where they live and what they can do if they find themselves pregnant. So just stay vigilant, do everything you can, ask the hard questions, rethink some of the things that you've been taught. If you come from a conservative community, if you're part of a church, find it in your heart to ask yourself, the hard questions and ask yourself what you would do in that particular situation. And we're hoping that what this does is open up some hearts and some minds
0: agreed. So share the episode. I feel like we've broken it down pretty well for for any argument here. so feel free to share the episode with your loved ones that may not be pro-choice. Um, make sure to follow us on Instagram. That's where we post a lot of resources, where we post a lot of books that we're reading. We have a great stack of books on abortion that include this one, but just more additional resources that you could tap into. Subscribe to our newsletter, head over to our Etsy shop, and oh my God, we should totally make some some pro-choice merch. I was just thinking that right <laughs> I mean, I'm going to stay quiet and say this to
1: her after. <laughs> But we should do some pop and bottles, reading novels and getting abortions. Yes, something
0: like that. (laughs) that. Oh, my God. And then we could donate part of it or something. Oh, okay. we are cooking this up. We're We're cooking cooking this up. up And you guys are inspiring us to do it. (laughs) So give us your thoughts. (laughs) Give us your thoughts. And we look forward to visiting the next episode, the next book, and just creating more thoughtful conversations around important topics with you guys.
1: It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And cheers. Cheers.